Coming to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, by way of Stone Mountain, Georgia, birthed by the great state of South Carolina, is the Bryant Land Country Podcast, your place for any and everything in hunting, fishing, sports, and outdoor related, with heavy doses of randomness, guests, and an all-around good time. Here's your host, proud Gamecock, South Carolina forever, AB3. Had you told me when I started this in January that we would make it to the end of the year and not counting the three or four or so bonus episodes we did, but actual episodes that I would be sitting here recording episode number 50 right before Christmas, I would probably say, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, is me being always the uh, cautious person, a little bit more uh, pessimistic in my thinking, um, I would not have put hard money or bet hard money on episode 50, but yet here we are, people. Episode 5-0, the big 5-0, the big 50, Bryantland Country Podcast. Merry Christmas. Uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, it will be two days before Christmas, and episode 50 is playing in your ear if you're listening to this now. So thank you for all your support. Thank you for all your feedback, your emails, your DMs, your messages, comments, everything, just all the support for the Bryantland Country Podcast. I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, we basically, we've made it almost to the end of 2019. We're going to have 2020 coming up. We're going to have some new things, uh, with the podcast, but before we get into all of that, I want to just take a dig in, go back and play some excerpts from what I call the best of, uh, volume one. They're going to be... As we continue to go on, there are going to be different episodes of, or different uh, episodes of best ofs where we do like a hodgepodge of best ofs from, you know, all the episodes. But right now we got 49 other episodes to grab from. And I want to do that today as we get ready to go into Christmas. We're going, I'm going to take you and listen to some of the episodes that I really like. No particular order here, so they're not ranked like top 10 or top 9 or anything like that. They're just episodes that I'm really proud of. Best of Volume 1. There'll be a Volume 2 at some point, but right now we're going to get in to Volume 1, Best of Other Bryantland Country Podcast. Bryantland. One of the cool things about this year is I got to talk to a lot of people. I got to interview um, a lot of different people. I have conversations with a lot of different people. But being able to talk to a childhood friend, a guy that I grew up with, uh, we've grown up from little kids all the way up to grown men, you know, family men. Um, it's really cool just to talk to one of my best friends in the world here. Episode 10 Bernie Samuels that was a great time we had a good time we talked about some of everything under the sun and you can go back and listen to these full episodes I encourage you to go back and listen to these full episodes because these excerpts like I said this is, this is the best of and these ex excerpts are going to be you know maybe five to seven minutes from these podcasts but I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 10 me and Bernie Samuels but here's a little bit from that episode uh, right here. Going to my grandmother's house, there was a shotgun that stayed behind the door forever. I don't even know if the thing ever was ever fired, <laughs> but it stayed behind the door all my life. Wow. <laughs> you know. But isn't that, isn't that crazy, though? Because, like, nowadays, you, you would get, like, ridiculed from here to there for keeping your guns out and keeping them unlocked and stuff. Like, man, we just knew. Like, okay, you know, granddaddy had yeah. a shotgun over here. Daddy, or, you know, grandma had a pistol right. here or whatever. And you just knew. But you knew that wasn't a toy. You knew that wasn't for you to play with. Like, you couldn't do that now. 
Exactly. Like, and now that you say about it, like, I knew where the rifle was at a young age. I'm talking 10, 12, the rifle was. Like, my grandmother talked about behind the door, so I saw that forever. didn't think anything of it. Like, okay, what's kind of this pipe-looking thing behind the door? As you get older, <laughs> you realize, oh, shotgun's been behind the door forever. Like, oh, okay. Right. You know, right. um, my, my grandmother, like I said, had a little... 22 revolver in a drawer like okay you know this stuff growing up like you said god we weren't even teenagers you just knew this is where things were and there weren't a toy you didn't play with them it was just known hey here's safety you don't go playing with these but they were always there you always knew being in a rural area that hey they may be needed for self-defense one of my on my mother's side she had um chicken so my grandfather always had a rifle you know if there's foxes or whatever at the chicken coop you know they were just part of life this was just part of southern farm life not to mention the snakes don't forget about the snakes oh oh my god yeah snakes man there were snakes all over the place cotton miles rattlers water moccasins Uh, (laughs) copperheads right like i i can remember walking through the property almost stepping on the snake like two times. One I didn't see. My dad stopped me from stepping on. The other one I did see, and it was a small um, copperhead. Wow. So it's like, this is just stuff you dealt with. Yeah. And so, you know, and fast forward to once I become a come of age to own my own firearm, I bought my own handgun. And that was, God, I, I think I was still at the great um, – higher institution of learning at Clemson oh, University. God. I believe it was a grad school there when I bought my, my first higher handgun. institution of learning, so, huh? There you go. You know, <laughs> okay. I'll leave that one there. <laughs> okay. Well, you needed, you needed a firearm in, in Clemson cause hell that was like leaving Lamar and going to Clemson was basically like, you know, it was, even though it was like what, three hours apart, it's still the same thing. Minus the the below average college, instead of a below average high school, there was a below average college. Oh, oh here we go, here we I go. Mean, the chickens are the chickens are clucking now. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying, I, you know, just to let some of the, you know let the people in a little bit. So we went to rival high schools, Timmonsville and Lamar in South Carolina, and then went off to college and went to rival colleges. So this this little yeah. back and forth has been going on, oh my God, over 20, what, 20 something years, 25 years. Oh my God. Right. As long as we've known each other and like we've known each other so well, long, I can't remember. And it's funny because I'm sitting here first met. and I'm trying to I, think I of like when, when did we first meet? And I think I got a rough guesstimation. It's funny because I can't remember some things and then there's some things that I can remember clear as day. And I remember being in gifted and talented in the summer, the gifted and talented program. And I remember playing kickball and they kicked the ball all the way to the fence at the old high school. Yeah. And you were the fastest some bitch that went and got that ball. Every time that, we kicked, <laughs> that ball was kicked in the outfield and your mom was the librarian of middle school. And my mom was the ISS teacher. At, um, yep. at, well, at the time, I think she was still subbing. And I think that, you know, my mom and your mom just kind of knew each other. And then, yeah, I and then so, you yeah. would come yep. over, you know, to the program. And then after that, with both of us growing up, you know, as only kids, we were just like, all right, cool. And then it, it, the rest is history. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And I remember those summers. I remember that program. But I was trying to think back, like, did we meet that first year of the program or whatever? Because we did that yep. for a couple of summers. And I, I was like, I can't put a date on to I can't when. put a date or so. age, but it, it was definitely like middle school. Yep. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely like yep. around middle school. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm with so you, man. Me, I'm with you, man. Let me ask you this real quick because, you know, obviously your dad taught you how to shoot and, like you said, having guns around and stuff. Do you remember in the program when we would have to take the hunter safety, the wildlife yes. man? You remember the yes. wildlife man? <laughs> yes. Yes. Because it was like the ultimate thing for the whole time during the summer. It was the the DNR would come to a hunter safety yes. class during this program yes. during the summer. And so at the culmination of this hunter safety was 
essentially they would pull out the ski, pull out ski, and do yep. a thrower at the back of the car, and we would go to uh, open field, and that was the culmination, and everybody was geeked as to who would right. score the highest for for shooting yep. sporting clays. It was like the greatest thing ever, and it was there at least three or four summers, yeah. if not longer. Yeah. Like we had our, we I think after you finished the class, because I remember the book and everything, and then I remember, you know, like the skeet shooting and stuff. I don't remember like how many I hit, how yeah. many I scored, but like for me, that was the first time I ever I handled that. a shotgun. But yes, I remember being super geeked about the wildlife, man. I've, I've told the wildlife man story exactly. like many times to other people and they're like, well, why is it the wildlife man? It's like, it's the South Carolina DNR, but we didn't call it the South Carolina DNR. It was just it's like, the is the wildlife man coming today? It's the wildlife man. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And it was and I always remember shooting and I always remember somewhere near the yes. end of the class, um, they always taught you being aware of your surroundings of shooting and they would always pull up this video picture and give you the scenario as to should you shoot or not shoot and then zoom in to see like what dangers might have been if there was a hunter or or if there was a house in this background behind behind this deer or whatever that that was originally in the picture and it was a good learning experience and wow and it was always the thing at the end like okay who's gonna win this year who's gonna be well first of all it's like who's gonna pass the class and then because you had to pass the hunter safety class because if you didn't pass it then you didn't get to do it so i think everybody passed imagine that right and then we would go out and shoot but it's funny you remember like all the details about the shooting and stuff i remember taking the class and i remember the book and i just remember looking at the book and like that's a deer track that's a raccoon track that's a turkey track that's a bobcat track like you know and then all the other stuff that was in there like the details about the shooting all i remember is like look we got to pass this test and then we get to go out and shoot. And then yeah. the crazy thing about it, when I started hunting, I forgot all about that. Like, I kind of remembered it, but I, I forgot all about it. Then we were going to Texas uh, when I was taking my son to Texas, and we was going, you know, on our ATV trip, and then we was going to go hog hunting. And then I bought an out-of-state license in Texas, and it was like, well, do you have your hunter safety? And I was like, I don't know. Do I have my hunter safety? I was like, wait a minute. The wildlife man. Yeah, I got my hunter safety. So I like I went on the website, the South Carolina DNR website, put in some information, pulled it up. Lo and behold, it had. Is there? Yes. And I printed it out. Oh, man, I got to go dig it up. I got to remember, go dig it up. Even better, remember before they changed our street addresses yeah. to like, well, yes. before we I changed the street address, address. The route yes. addresses. Yes, when we had the route address, oh, my hunter yeah. safety card is my route address. Oh, yeah, I got to do that. I got to <laughs> do that. Brightland. One of the things that I hope to do more in... 2020 is to do more face-to-face sit-downs, talk to people uh, face-to-face as opposed to over the phone. Majority of our conversations are recorded, you know, over the phone. Uh, Some of them are done by Skype, but I really would like to do more face-to-face. And I had the chance to do that very early uh, in the podcast, episode three, I was down in Houston on a work trip and I took some time to catch up with Willard Franklin III from the 4W's fishing team. And we had a great conversation during uh, one of the boat expos down there in Houston. And then we went out to eat a uh, great Cajun restaurant we went to down there in uh, Houston. The name escapes me right now, but like I said, enjoy the dynamic of sitting across from someone and uh, talking to them. And I was still a little green in this podcast thing. So audio quality wasn't the best, but we had a great conversation. And, and like I said, eventually it got better as far as like, you know, my equipment and audio and stuff like that. But uh, here's a little piece of the conversation from uh, Mr. Willard Franklin III from the 4Ws just talking about promoting the outdoors and opening kids' eyes, uh, giving them a chance to be exposed to the outdoors. 4W Fishing Team, our, our, our goal going forward is promoting the outdoors to people, young people especially. I'm, I'm from Houston. I grew up in Sunnyside. I grew up, went to school with mass murderers. I could have been right there. 
one of the guys that all went to death row, and this is a true story, was one of the biggest mass murderers in Houston, Texas. Went to school with him, played with him since elementary school, kindergarten. And one of the guys went to death row because he drove them. He wanted to pick up his check at this, this where he worked, took two other buddies with him, and he was the driver. Hey, let's go. We've been hanging out forever. And he went to the driver. They stabbed and killed. You see, so how quickly and easily your life can change. But I couldn't do stuff like that with those guys because I was what? Going outdoors. Going fishing and hunting. and I knew them. We played together. But, you know, but how quickly and easily your life can change by surrounding yourself with the wrong people. So for me, going back to my old neighborhood where I grew up, where times haven't changed, they don't even have a big chain grocery store. You can't, it's not a Starbucks in my old neighborhood. That's crazy. Let me ask you this. Hold that thought real quick. But let me ask you this because I saw this the other day. Do you have a lot of fo- uh, family dollars and Dollar Generals? Yeah. Now, I don't know if you saw it. I saw an article that basically, and I, no, it was it was in Oklahoma City. It was the lady in Oklahoma City. She got a ordinance passed to where there's only so many family dollars and Dollar Generals that you can build in the urban neighborhoods and in air quotes urban right. neighborhoods because the way that the uh, market structure and the way that they run their pricings at the family dollars and Dollar Generals it keeps the fresh food markets and it keeps the fresh grocery stores out. You can't get fresh food, you know, uh, vegetables, fruit, vegetables in the neighborhood. You had to go outside the neighborhood to get it because that's what's in there. You know, you can buy dried this and back box that. You know, does Dollar General, they have a seafood, I mean, not seafood, but a, a, a fresh vegetable department? No. No. And so that's part of the, the struggle. They call it, what do they call it? It's a food desert. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. We're teaching kids how to garden, how to camp, how to do outdoors. So we spend a lot of time at the schools, in the neighborhood, community activism, and they need it. You know, and some of the, the, the element, which how do you tell an ele, elementary or middle school kid that your school is a gateway to prison? That's ignorant. My wife's school teacher. How dare you even say that to those kids you know so where you live you know where your family's from you 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 ride the bus your family don't have a car but those are the things that that's crazy to me already trying to set them behind before they even get started that's 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 that stigma this is where you go to school half of the kids gonna go to prison and and a third may make it to college you set them up for what failure they have no idea that you can make two or three hundred thousand dollars in the outdoor business, you can make thirty thousand. You know, it 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 the, the sky's the limit. Can you can you help a young brother? Can you can you show put me on the path to, so I can get to two three hundred thousand? <laughs> you know, being being a tugboat operator, who would think that working on a tugboat, work being a pilot that goes out to navigate those ships? Look it up and see what their pilots get paid. A barge operator, a professional fisherman, a shrimper, a guide. You know, I just kind of throw this out there. The guys, a professional guide charges $550 for four hours. You do two trips a day, 1000 bucks. Who makes $1,000 a day? Huh? Not too many people. Who can make a, your business, and if you're good, you can do two trips a day, and that's just a minimum. They charge 550 The better you are, the more you charge, 550 $600. So at $500 a trip, four hours, you do two trips a day, $1,000 without breaking a sweat every day during the summer you work every day and don't get it twisted young people you still gotta you know you gotta learn your craft and you got expenses and all that kind of stuff but what what, what we're trying to get across here is, is you know like the old people would say when there's a will there's a way right you know so those are the things that that people young people have no if you've never been exposed to if nobody ever took you outside you have no idea what's available to you coming from school they don't teach you careers in school that was the other thing i saw they're starting i think in iowa they're starting archery in the uh, bow classes as a part of the uh, um, bow classes and hunting classes as a part of vocational right and so that for people that want to get careers in the outdoors the biologists parks and wildlife the game warden what what are they outdoor deals you know the fisheries they they measure uh, do samples 
surveys, all that outdoor stuff. And if you never, you have no idea those are careers are available, period. Brightland. One of the things as a man that I need to work on and get better at is just trying to have a positive, optimistic look on situations and things around me. And I mean, you know, everyday life, things happen and we don't necessarily, you know, look um, at the bright side of some of those things because, you know, for us, uh, when something happens, it, or at least I won't say for us, I'll say for me, when something happens, you know, I don't always find the lesson or the bright side in it. But one person that I talked to last year that got me to thinking was this guy that goes by the name of Son of the Son of the South, Josh Carney. Now, Josh... Um, had an accident when he was turkey hunting. Uh, his father shot him. Um, like I said, it's a turkey hunting accident and left him paralyzed. But talking to Joshua, he has a great sense of humor and just a positive outlook on life. And if that guy can go through that and still have a positive outlook, then the day-to-day BS that I go through or that some of us go through, man, we can all take a page out of Josh's book and just be a better person and have more optimism in our life. Take a listen. So 2005, I was accidentally shot turkey. And my dad accidentally shot me turkey. And um, it left me paralyzed. I spent three months in the hospital. The doctors told me I'd never talk again. I'd never walk and all this stuff, you know. Being in a situation, I learned that can either accept that and, you know, let it hold me down and, you know, be a burden to me. Or, you know, I can accept the fact that I have another day to live and I can make the best of it. So that's what I did. I made the best of the bad situation. But, you know, looking back at it, you know, my situation isn't really that bad because a lot of people have it worse than I do. But having that that mindset installed in me, you know, it makes me have a positive outlook on life. I have bad days. I mean, everybody has bad days. Sure. But let me backtrack. I don't have bad days. And a lot of people misunderstand the fact of bad days. You know, a lot of people have 10 to 20 minutes of bad thoughts of bad things that happen to them that make their whole day bad. But you have 24 hours in a day. You can't let that 10 to 20 minutes ruin your whole day. So you have to figure out ways to let that bad moment get past you and, you know, continue to find positive things throughout those other 23 hours to make you happy or bring back joy to your life. That's what I focus on. I focus on finding things that make me happy. I find a way to laugh out of every situation. At being in a wheelchair, I, I I find more humor in myself and the things that I do on a daily basis that people would probably never even think that it would be funny to them. Like, I crack jokes about myself, and people just look at me like, dude, did you just say that about yourself? I mean, yeah, I can joke about that. I've accepted the fact that this is my lifestyle. You know, I have a great sense of humor and a, a positive manner about the way that I do things. That brings light to other people. That makes other people happy. Maybe they're struggling with something that they're going through that day or something at work or, you know, anything that they're going through. Having a positive outlook, me showing a positive outlook, lifts up other people and encourages other people and makes other people smile. And I like to work out a lot. So like I go to the gym a lot. I post gym stuff, and one of my biggest things is, you know, I go to the gym. I'm like, man, I really hate leg day. And people are like, dude, why would you say that? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it changes the outlook of my situation, and people, they can relate to that. Finding humor in a bad situation, you know, makes someone else figure that, you know, I don't have it so bad. Like, if he can laugh at it and I can laugh at my situation, life is too short to be mad about something you do. Have fun while you can. You know, live your life to the fullest. And you know, that's just my method of thinking. That's why I'm always positive all the time. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense because I'm looking right now and the one thing that caught my eyes, you got this meme. It's this lady in the wheelchair. And, you know, people always love to say, Jesus, take the wheel. And it's got you. Or what does it say? It says, me, Jesus, the wheel. And he took the wheel. And it's like one wheelchair. I mean, seriously, dude, like, where, where do you find this stuff? 
So I, I thought that I thought that was one of the greatest memes of all time. For 2019, at least, I'm pretty sure I'm going to post a right. lot funnier stuff and a lot more stuff this year. Right. I'm just waiting on the right memes to post. But no, I, I think that's actually funny because I've been in situations where I have been in my chair. My wheel has actually fell off, like in mid-roll. <laughs> so, right. that meme where the lady sitting in a wheelchair, the guy steals her wheel, and the, you know, the guy's Jesus. You know, and it's song <laughs> Jesus Take the Wheel. I just find right. that, yeah, I relate to that on a personal level. Man, I wish I could find, I was trying to find it. It was a Instagram story that you post, and God, I can't remember what it was. I, as I get older, my memory is getting bad about certain things. There's certain things that I can remember clear as day that blows people away, and then there's certain things that happened just like a couple of days or a couple of hours ago, and I have absolutely no recollection, but I was going through uh, messages we had going back and forth. There was something that you posted, and I was just like, man, that is the funniest thing I've seen in a long time, and you were like it's the absolute truth though i think it was something about like it's all oh, yeah, yeah yeah i know what you're talking about so i did a um i did a question and answer thing yes. a week ago or so a couple weeks ago yes someone asked me uh like hey man you're going to the gym a lot you're getting real swole and my answer was i'm only working out so women don't kidnap me <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> From the standpoint of, if you look at his account and his pictures, Lance is a professional wildlife photographer. He takes the most badass pictures of deer, turkey, bass fish, um, just whatever you can think of, mostly uh, deer and turkey, but his deer pictures are out of this world. And on episode 21, I got a chance to talk to Lance and he basically broke down his secret to being able to get close and to get these amazing pictures that he was able to get. And like I said, he broke it down and he basically said, look, there's, you know, everybody hits me up. They want to know what my secret is. Here it is. Take a listen. And uh, people are always asking me, DMing me behind the scenes, asking me in the comments, you know, how do you photograph these deer? You know, what, what's your secret? What's, what's the, the magic bullet, you know, that gets you to be so, you know, so close to all these big deer? And it's not the answer that they want to hear. The answer that I give them is time in the field. Because you can do, you know, buy all these products that, you know, claim that they're going to give you more success with deer, deer sense, and all these different things. And those things do help. But the number one thing that I have that most people don't put in is time in the field, sitting there waiting. You know, how many guys spend four months of the year in the woods? See, I'm kind of like a catch and release hunter. I go and I can photograph deer and shoot them as many times as I want with my camera because I'm not harming them. I can go before the season and I can shoot as many deer as I want. I don't have any limits, any bag limits or any of that kind of stuff. And I can photograph after the season. Right. I can photograph all year round. By doing that, I'm logging hours sitting in a blind observing deer or even if I'm scouting because I do a lot of scouting trying to figure out where to set up blinds and stuff like that. Yep. And so even if it's from a distance, you can see and learn about deer movements if you're 200 yards away, 300 yards away, overlooking, you know, from a, um, a high spot to a, a field below, you know, a food plot or something, where the deer come in. And so the more time you spend in the field, the more success you're going to have because you learn deer behavior. There's a saying that I like to say that I know what deer are going to do before deer do it. <laughs> I saw and that. The, I saw and that. that is very true because if you spend enough time out there, you learn when, you know, two deer are coming together, what they're about to do. And if they're equally matched, 
you know that they're going to fight before they even get their ears laid back. Right. And just by telling behavior from what their body is doing, their body behavior, their the way their eye, they hold their eyes, stuff like that, you can know what they're going to do before they even do it. You know, it may be thinking, you know, that it may be them thinking it, but you know what they're going to do. You know what's going through their mind before it even happens. And so I don't have any kind of magic bullet or anything that's going to, you know, make your hunting so much easier. What you've got to do is spend time in the field. Brightland. Now, if you are a regular listener of the Brightland Country Podcast, uh, which if you're not, I don't understand why you're not. Go ahead and subscribe, man. We drop every Monday brand new podcast for you. So if you're not subscribing, you really should be subscribing. But anyway, if you already are, then you know this guy right here, Antonio Marsh, has been on about three times already. He's the most, uh, has the most appearances for 2019 other than myself on the podcast. And it's just because we just naturally clicked. Before this year, before I started doing the podcast, I didn't know Antonio or his family. Um, a mutual friend of ours introduced introduced us to each other, just basically said, hey, you know, he likes to hunt. I know a guy that likes to hunt, um, and he's working on a podcast. You guys should get together. And lo and behold, you know, this last year has just been really cool. And like I said, he's been on the podcast three times. But the very first time he was on episode 14, he talked about just starting out hunting and getting, you know, his feet wet and getting some experience about him. And then he was able to take his wife out and she was able to be successful. And this was a pretty cool story about her first time out hunting. So uh, check out Antonio here, episode 14. I started out in Camden. There's a lady there, a good friend of mine. His mom has like 34 acres there. And she would allow me to go out there and hunt, which, like I said, I wasn't following rules and, you know, watching the wind and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I'm going to say that year right there was probably the best thing that could have happened because I was on 34 acres. There was nobody else there. I could make my mistakes, just kind of get myself acclimated to being outdoors. Um, I could take my daughter, take her out with me, put her on one of the land. I go to the other side of the land, you know, and just try to figure out, hey, this is how you do this. And then it was almost like when we went to the hunt club, it was almost like being pulled from, you know, the minor leagues up to the big leagues. Right. And they're like, okay. We were from 34 to 3,000 acres. It was like, we're not in the little gym anymore. You know, we're up here, you know, in the Lakers at the old forum, you know, playing (laughs) ball. But see, that's good because that, you know, starting off like that, like you said, it prepared you for going into into the hunt club. You know, I'm I'm fortunate that I have my own land in Georgia to hunt, you know, mm-hmm. 30, 33 and a half acres that it's just me and my son out there. And that's pretty much how I kind of keep it. You know, we kind of do our own thing. I go out there, like you said, you learn and you make your mistakes. But then with me traveling as much as I do, I do like a lot of uh outfitted hunts like if i can carve out the time i'll go with an outfitter and stuff and just the learning you know it's almost like going to somebody else's house you know you go to somebody else's house you got to follow their rules you know you can do your stuff on your land but then when you go somewhere else you know you kind of got to fall in line and some of the stuff that you can do at your place you may not be able to do there also some of the tactics that may work at your place may not work at this other place i mean it just depends yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I believe in, you know, there's a process what you do. But I also believe that hunting is, is partially about being at the right place at the right time and a little bit of luck. And I saw that with my wife because we went out one morning, and that whole morning was just a disaster from the start. We got out there, got in the stand. Of course, I drove in again. We got in the stand. We're ready. I had hogs coming in left and right throughout the week. So, of course, we get out there. And the feeder doesn't go off. So now I'm like, what is going on? So what do I do? I get out of the stand, walk to the feeder, and try to find out what's going on. Where I'm thinking, as I thought about it, I said, well, if the hogs were coming in consistent, you shouldn't have to worry about the feeder. So I went out there anyway, checked it. Feeder, spinner's not stuck. So I reached my hand in there. I'm throwing corn in the air. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. So I'm walking back. I get right to the stand. I go to uh, climb up. And she's looking down at me, and she, her eyes, you know, like those emoji eyes had to get real big. Right. And she's, like, pointing behind me. She's, like, pointing, like, you know, behind me. And I'm like, what? So I stop, 
And also, you could just hear all this movement behind the stand. What was it? It was the hogs. <laughs> so <laughs> if I would have been patient, all of my process, knowing they were coming out like clockwork, right. you shouldn't have to worry about it. So, of course, I get in the stands now. I'm mad. I'm furious because I was like, this is her chance to get something. Okay, whatever. Eventually, some smaller hogs came out, and you know, she's shooting a Ruger a 7mm weight. I was like, well, look. You hit one of those small ones with that, you're probably not going to have too much meat. I'm just telling you. <laughs> so she's like, well, I'm not going to shoot it. So we went the whole weekend and just nothing. So now I'm mad because I screwed up everything, got out the stand. I say, well, look, it was Sunday afternoon. I say, well, let's just go back out, see if the hogs come out, see you know, if you can get something. We'll sit about three hours, and if not, we'll just come home. So when we get out there, we sit, nothing. I'm like, okay. I was like, are you ready to go? She's like, yeah. So we're in the middle of packing up. And all of a sudden, she reaches over and taps me and points outside the stand. This eight-point buck is like 15 yards in front of the stand. Oh, wow. Literally just creeping through. He was so close, she said, I can't see him in the scope. That's how close he was. So I said, well, get the time. And what he was doing, he was chasing a doe because his head was down. And he could care less what was going on around him. So he walked in. He walked past me in the woods. I was like, I think he'll come back out. Sure enough, maybe 60, 70 yards, he came back out, went straight to the cedar. And when I tell you, he gave a textbook pose to say, shoot me. <laughs> and I looked at her, and I was like, what are you waiting on? So she shot, bam, hit him. He ran the woods. Of course, it took us forever all night to finally mm-hmm. track him. But you're talking somebody, the first time they ever went out, Honey, she's an eight-point buck, 185 pounds, first time. Wow, I man. And I'm just saying, looking like, I'm going on forever trying to find something. You come out here the first time. Brightland. If you go back and you listen to the very first episode of the Brightland Country Podcast, one of the things that I said is that I was going to stay away from politics, mostly because... The hunting and fishing outdoor industry is saturated with a lot of uh, political beliefs uh, mixed in with our hunting and fishing. And most of those political beliefs are super conservative. And I said I was just going to kind of stay away from it, you know, focus on having fun, telling stories, telling great stories, um, and just kind of leaving the politics out of it. But... I could not ignore an article that was written by Patrick Durkin, and it was called, Is Hunting Too White? And I wanted to just talk to him because I posted the article, didn't receive the most positive feedback in just reposting the article, so that wasn't going to stop me. I said, well, hell, my daddy always used to tell me if you wanted to find out something or you want something done or you want to talk to somebody, you go straight to the top. So I was like, well, there's no need of, you know, fiddle messing around. I'll just go straight to the source. So I called him up and he was very gracious. He came on and talked about, you know, his article. And anytime you write an article with that title, nine times out of 10, most people are just going to read the title and that's what's going to, you know, get their feathers all ruffled up. But Patrick came on, he broke down how he came up with the title. And basically, in this clip, he's what he's just trying to say is that in order for this sport, this lifestyle that we love to continue, it's going to have to open up just past white folks and just and have more diversity. So listen to this uh, excerpt from episode 25 with Pat Durkin. And then I urge you, if you have not, to go listen to the whole episode. It was, it was a really good episode, and he breaks down exactly where he's coming from. Check this out. You wrote an article here a couple weeks ago, an uh, article titled, Is Hunting Too White? And, you know, I read the article. I thought it was a great article. It hit, you know, a lot of points and stuff. But I know one of the problems I had when I posted the article and then reposted it in some groups. People just Uh read headlines 
and then they jump off yeah. the deep end or they read the title right. and they jump off the deep end. I've been in the media business in some form of fashion since my second semester in college. So it's over 20 years. Most of it's in television. I know mm -hmm. that the point is to grab headlines where, or to grab eyeballs or ears or, you know, whatever your medium is. So I, I understand that you have to dig deeper than the title. A lot of people, especially nowadays, don't want to do that. My question to you is, having written that article, what kind of feedback, backlash did you get? Like any kind of hate mail? Like what was the response directly to you about it? Yep. You know, my responses that I received overall were very positive. I think most people who um, took the time to track me down and, and talk to me directly had read the article. But, you know, when you go online and read, um, like, you know, the article appeared on, on the meateater.com website. They um, have their forums, like, on um, Instagram and Facebook. And you go on there, you go on to Instagram and Facebook, and you right away you, you see the difference where um, people there are responding to the headline, they're responding to um, maybe they read a, a few sentences from the article, but overall they did not get past the headline. And I guess, Adam, you know, my thought is I've been at this, I've been writing, you know, reporting since early 1980s. And I think one of the frustrations I've always known long before the days of social media was that um, a lot of people never get past the headline. That's not unique to uh, our modern ways of communication. And I, I guess the, the reason I'll just, I'll um, basically defend the headline is because I think that's kind of the, that idea is hunting too white. When I first got this idea for an article, I was just coming off of a, a trade show. I think it's either the, the shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show or the Archery Trade Association annual trade show in January. I um, was talking to someone there about the fact that when you look at um, who takes part in hunting, and for the most part, they tend to be um, people like myself who are um, middle-aged to older white guys. And in Wisconsin, I, I've seen, like at gas stations, you'll see um, typically, again, middle-aged white guys wearing the blaze orange. There are um, populations in Wisconsin of Laotian refugees, you know, among people who um, are hunters, and that's part of their hunting tradition. But overall, though, you don't see too many people of color hunting around Wisconsin, and you definitely don't see them walking around trade shows, the hunting trade shows. So I guess that's why I um, started asking myself, and, and when I was talking to other guys, saying, um, you know, it's hunting too white. If you're really concerned about um, hunting's future and having a, a good, stable hunting population, we're going to have to get beyond just um, um, white folks. And that's, I think, all that motivated. It wasn't, you know, race in our country, you know better than I do, is such a sensitive topic. And I, so I guess I didn't go out of my way to um, provoke people. At least that wasn't my intention. I just I thought it was, uh, it was a question worth asking. Brightland. Now, if y'all are like me, Born and raised down here in the South, um, living in the South, surrounded by a strong hunting population, bow hunters, gun hunters, duck hunters, turkey, deer, coon, houndsmen, all that. You don't exactly think about hunting in New York or New York City. As many times as I've been to New York City in my professional and per well, my professional career and in my personal life, hunting was not something that I was thinking about. Well, Cliff Cadet in episode 13, Urban Archery NYC, basically breaks all of that all that glass and kicks the door down. There's hunting going on in New York. There's black men in New York that are getting out and doing some hunting. And it was really cool to get to talk to Cliff just to find out, you know, how he got started. Cliff would go on to go on a, on a, a couple of hunts here this season. But this episode, episode 13, when I first talked to him, he was just getting started going through the process of picking a bow and whatnot. So just listen to Cliff here as he's getting started on his journey to becoming a bow hunter and being a bow hunter in New York City. How cool is that? Check it out. And the only time, you know, somebody, you know, like myself or from my, from my neighborhood could probably shoot in the archery was if you went away to, like, the Fresh Air Fund, you know, or up to the country for a camp or something like that. That's about it. So, you know, you fast forward now to, you know, we're in the 2000s, 
not even fast forward to we're in 2019 or 2017. I want to say July 2017. Um, I remember I was off for work for one week, and my cousin had actually bought a bow with his daughter, like maybe a month or two prior to that. Something that they were, you know, a hobby that they had taken up. And I was just out one day and was just like, you know what, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> you know, let me, let me make this childhood fantasy a reality. And um, I purchased my bow in July 2017. Was shooting for a little bit the later half of 2017. I had a lot going on work and family-wise in 2018. It was a crazy year, so I really didn't get to shoot much. But um, end of 2018 came, and I was determined. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get back out in the range. And I really started really started studying, man. Really started studying the, the sport, the history. You know, I purchased the bow package, um, not just the bow itself. So it came with everything on it. Started figuring out what I wanted to shoot with or wanted to try out, you know. That's the thing about archery. You're not you're not necessarily going to know what you like until you've right. you've actually tried it. So so I'll give you for example, like um, my bow came with a four pin sight. Oof. Um, I was like, you know what? I didn't like Oof. the way. Honestly, for me, the way the four pin sight comes in from the yeah. right, and I felt like it was take it was taking a lot from my sight of seeing the target. You know what I'm saying? So I switched up to a oh. one pin sight coming in from yep. the bottom, and you know it's just taking a sl- taking away a sliver of the target. And I find I shot better with that, you know. And then um, let me let me tell you. No, let me let me let me tell you. Now, when I got my, I started off with a with a uh, with a bear cruiser, and that mm-hmm. bow, uh, like yours, like a package bow. It came with a whisker biscuit, and it came with a with a four pin sight. And you know, I fooled around with that thing, and finally got it sighted in. Actually, the first animal I ever killed was a uh, wild hog. I went on a hog hunt. And I killed it with that four-pin sight. And I started messing around, like you say, and you kind of trying different things and figuring out what you like. When I went to a one-pin sight, I have not looked back. It was like the clouds parted and the sun came out when I started shooting a one-pin. Like I tell, I, I, I tell anybody that's like, you know, get you an adjustable one pin. You know, you mark your tape at 10 yards, 20 yards, 30, however, and, exactly. and do it from there, man. That That is, oh, man, that's probably one of the best things that you could have done. What kind of bow do you have? Like, what kind of package bow did you get? Actually, I have a bear archery agent. It's, okay. Um, it's this bow that was um sold only in uh, Dick's Sporting Goods. Right. Um, yep. Well, actually, Field and, Field and Stream, the two the two stores actually merged. One bought the other, so they're actually one and the same. Yep. Now, the one thing, like, I'm trying to let people, I'm going to put people on to is that if, if you get interested in archery and you, you know, really want to do it, shop around. Now, you'll get, I would say, go to a pro shop first, go to an archery range, speak to a bow tech, um, you know, try some stuff out there, but understand, like, what I've been telling a lot of people is uh, it's going to be pricey. If you've got the bread for it, yeah. cool. I don't, I can't knock you. Yep. You know what I'm saying? But understand, like, um, I'm a big believer is that in that, what it, the means I've been seeing, like, it's not the bow, it's the archer. It is. You know what I'm saying? It is. The bow so, doesn't, so, the bow so, helps. The, the bow helps. Now, yeah. I, and I know people will disagree. I think I'm a better shooter now shooting a Matthews than I was shooting a bear. Now, granted, you know, I've put in more time and I've come a long way and I've learned more and stuff, but you will never get me to like knock anybody who wants to upgrade and do their equipment. But like you said, if you just want to get in the game, go to the big box mm-hmm. store, get you a, a, a inexpensive bow, learn how to shoot, learn, you know, your sights and things like that. And then once you get comfortable, step up to a flagship bow or something like that, if that's what you want to do. That's exactly it. And it's funny because I'll be on a range now. I'll see people with their Hoyts and, and you know, higher end bows and stuff like that. And I've got way tighter groupings and hitting a bullseye way more often than these dudes are just like, you know, all over the place if they're hitting the target. You know what I'm saying? And that same place I've gone mm-hmm. to also is like, I've had to do like, I had a dude, uh, Botech, talk to me and then kept referring to my bow as economical, economical. I was like, dude, just up and call it cheap. If you, want. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to change what I'm shooting just yet because you know what? I'm a husband yep. and a father and you know what? My money has yep. to go elsewhere. I first. totally understand that. Brightland. Me being a single man, I enjoy the freedoms and all of the, uh, should we say blessings that comes with being 
a single man. But I also am intrigued by couples, especially couples that hunt and seem to have figured out a way to make it work and get a balance. And that's what I came across in episode 36 with Rain and Mr. Knockout down in Lancaster, South Carolina. Uh, Episode 36 with Rain and Jason hunting as a couple in South Carolina. These two, I really enjoy how they love each other. I really enjoy how they work together as a team. They are truly a team out here. And one of this little excerpt from that episode is just on how they met. And then after we got past that part, we were just kicking it. And it was just really cool just talking about, you know, the different types of hunting, hunting gear, stuff like that. But listening to these two go down memory lane of how they met was really cool. So take a listen. Episode 36 uh, here. Here's an excerpt from it. Tell us how you swept this sweet southern gal off her feet. With your New York style, son. <laughs> so look, this is this is really what happened. I don't care what she tells you. Okay. So I, was in store. <laughs> I was in the store. She walked up to me and said, "Listen, I'm taking you out on a date." That's the end of the story. What? Wow. <laughs> Aggressive. That'll, okay. That don't sound right. No. <laughs> um, it was actually because um, I'm a manager at a retail company uh, and. One of my associates and Rain are related. So she um, had actually told Rain about me before. Um, and then she actually showed me a picture of Rain. I was like, yeah, definitely. Definitely want to meet her. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I guess she showed her the picture and she had a mutual reaction. Obviously. How, how you know what kind of reaction I had? Because I'm handsome, so there would, there would be no other reaction <laughs> said, to it. He said, because I'm handsome, <laughs> you ain't had no choice. <laughs> That's what's up. <laughs> so you you was already down here in South Carolina? or? Yeah, so I, I had actually moved down here in 2010 okay. uh, from New York. It was just one of those things. It was time for me to get out of there. Yeah. Uh, just needed a lifestyle change and things to kind of slow down. I actually had um, ambitions of opening up my own company. I actually did. I uh, opened up a tattoo shop, actually two of them, since I've been down in North Carolina. Um, I opened up one in North Carolina and one in Georgia. Where um, in Georgia? We were in College Park. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right inside Atlanta. Yep. Uh, Metro Atlanta. Yeah. So the shop in Georgia, we ended up closing after a year. Um, and then me and two of my partners opened up a shop here in North Carolina. Okay. But things just got a little too hectic between work and trying to run a business. So I thought the best thing for me was just to continue to work uh, at the time. And it kind of benefited because if I wasn't back at work, I would have never met Rain. So that that was actually a good Aww. thing. Aww, look at this. We, we, got, <laughs> we got love stories and everything. That's what's up. That's what's up. So y'all meet Rain, you, from what I've observed looking at your pages and stuff, mm-hmm. you're not new to this. You grew up doing this whole hunting thing. I'm true to this. I'm telling you. So what? when was your first hunting experience? So, like, fresh out the womb, like, when my, when my mom and dad was in the hospital, like, they didn't even bring me no pacifier. They brought me a deer antler, and I was, you know, sucking on the deer antler. Stop playing. Straight out. Stop playing. I need to to see a picture of that. Uh, uh, Come on now. No, but for real, um, (laughs) (laughs) I started fishing when I was like five, and I've been fishing like for a long time. Like I've I've really been fishing since I've been five. Um, I started deer hunting later on in life. I started rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting. I started all that around eight. But I started deer hunting maybe around 16. Wow. And I started off straight with the bow. Okay. Oh, you started off with a bow. Okay. Right. Compound? Compound bow. What was your first bow? Uh, It was diamond bow. Okay. The bow that I have now. It's oh, well, the, okay. The, the diamond core. It was my very first bow. Okay. 
So deer hunting with a bow, squirrel, and then rabbit, which is funny because where I'm at now, as far as like, you know, starting, you know, doing all this whole hunting thing, like I said, I started Mm -hmm. about four years ago and then just kind of like caught fire with it. Like I started out with a bow, went hog hunting and then, Mm -hmm. you know, deer hunting and then hunting turkeys, duck hunting, goose hunting. And then the other day, I was like, well, shoot, we sitting here waiting on deer season. I was like, man, I'm going to go try squirrel hunting. We got out there, of course. It was raining here, and then where we hunt at, it's about an hour and a half away. So we still, I was like, bump it. We ain't got nothing else to do. It's on Sunday. We drove down there, and, of course, we probably walked around the woods probably for like six, seven minutes, and then the next day, you know, the sky fell. So that pretty much put a kibosh on the whole squirrel hunting thing, but right. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back out there and trying it again. Okay. I enjoy squirrel hunting. However, the squirrel don't have that same energy that they have during deer season for some reason. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have that same energy. <laughs> so it's not just me because most... It's not you. Okay, because most animals don't have that same energy when it's their time to be in the crosshairs. Like when Right, like what was you at when I was looking for you? And right. I'm out here trying to hunt deer and you over there, I'm looking around thinking it's a deer running, it's you and your cousin running around here acting crazy. Right, making all this noise. My uh, a buddy <laughs> of mine posted a picture the other day on Facebook and he's got like these big hefty turkeys that was in a um industrial park out where he worked at. And I'm just like, where was y'all at in April? And listen, May. Like, listen, we just got the same thing on our trail camera. <laughs> trail camera. It was last week. We just had three toms come up right in front of the trail camera. See. It was like, where, where were y'all at during turkey season? Yeah, like that, that's the stuff that, that gets under my skin. It's just like, come on now. So, Brightland. Now, the last one I'm going to give y'all in this first volume of Best Ofs is the episode with Ken Brown. Now, I say it the way that I say it because I really enjoy Ken. I really enjoyed having him on. I got to get him back on, catch up with him, because he's been doing some really cool stuff this season. But the problem with Ken is he is a diehard Clemson guy. And if anybody knows anything about me, I am a graduate, proud graduate of the University of South Carolina uh, diehard Gamecock, um, no matter how bad our football team is, you know, I still, you know, support my football team. I support, you know, basketball, men's and women's, softball, baseball, you know, equestrian, whatever. I'm a diehard University of South Carolina guy, okay? And he is a diehard Clemson guy. So it's kind of hard to put the two of us in the same room or better yet on the same phone line. But this episode was truly one of the more entertaining episodes that we had all season. Uh, just talking to Ken, because Ken's a natural born fool, but he is a great bow hunter. He's got a lot of knowledge over the years, just being out there in the woods, putting his time in. And here's a little excerpt from that interview. It was episode two. Um, and the funny thing about it, Ken was the first person I interviewed for my podcast. The We went through, we did interview, everything worked out, so I thought, and come to find out, we had audio issues. So we had to do the entire interview over again, and he was super gracious with his time. So you can't really beef with that. Um, but check out here a little excerpt from episode two here with old uh, Ken Brown. Let me wrap this whole Clemson thing up because what, you know, what people don't know, like I said, we've had conversations before and I know that one of the things that I think is hilarious to me is you name your deer after Clemson, quote unquote, greats, which I thought is the most hilarious thing mm-hmm. to me. Explain that to the people. <laughs> well, the reason why I do it, because I mean, everybody, I'm a diehard Clemson football fan. I was recruited out of high school by football, well, by Clemson, by Danny Ford. Committed my junior year, got hurt my senior year. Football career was done, hurt my back. I was done. You know, got back in shape, got some basketball offers. I was like, nah, I'm just a strictly football guy. Didn't take any of it. 
And ever since I've been hunting, I see a dominant buck. I wouldn't name it after a Clemson coach or a player. And I named this big buck Dabo that I was chasing because he was the biggest, baddest buck in the woods. I watched him beat up big bucks, and I said, I'm going to get him, and I named him Dabo. If you look at the game last night, Dabo beat that big old buck up last night, you know, right middle of the rut. So, and that's why I named my, after my deer, I done, I done got Jeff Davis. I done got Perry Total. I, you know, I, I, somebody else got Dabo. I got Spiller. I've got Danny Ford, and I've got Frank Howard. So wow. I got Mr. V on camera this year, and I and I got uh, Colin D. Ford, Deshaun Watson. I got him on camera. And my next big one I get, the next two big ones I get, you can bank on it. One's going to be called TL for Trevor Lawrence, and one's going to be called Ross and Higgins. Those are going to be my next three books. Oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Showed the picture, and they cracked up laughing, and they just got a kick out of it, and they all love it. It's funny, but I love it. I think it's, you know, it's unique. You know, everybody likes it, but everybody names a book. It is. It's very unique, and it's funny. Like I said, well, the funny thing to me is, you know, like I know you grew up with Brian Maddox that played football at South Carolina, and um, I had the pleasure of meeting him and talking to him, and then that's how I ended up linking with you. But it's funny because he's from up that way, and he got away and went to the real school. But, you know, Danny Ford was definitely <laughs> a, uh, a legend in his own right. Now, one of the deer that you named is Dabo. And I remember you were telling me you named Dabo because he was like the biggest. He was the bull of the wood. He was the big one. But Dabo went down to a gun hunter as opposed to you with your bow, right? Yeah, that hurt. That hurt. He, uh, I got in one day. I saw him at the bottom. It's just a ticket with his doe bed. He runs. He's chasing the doe. And that was the first time he had a show. And I said, all right, I'm a, I got my chair. I'm going to have to hunt hard. Then I get sick. Got a little flu, so I can't hunt. And I'm missing the rut. And I'm like, okay. I'm going to get back in there. So I get back in there, see all these different bucks I'm getting. That's when Mr. V showed up. I was like, man, that's Venables. He, first time I got him on camera. And all these bucks are showing up left and right. I knew something. I said, something ain't right. Because for two years, it was no other bucks around. He ran the show. He run everything off. That told me, okay, I got all these bucks showing up, some nice bucks. Something ain't right. And I ain't got him on camera. And I hadn't seen him. And this guy posted a picture, and he shot him at 220 yards with a seven mag, and I almost started crying because I worked my ass off. Of, I had him patterned so good. I had him at our first encounter. I got him at 50 yards. I'm full draw. I need him to take a step, and I got. And I'm gonna put it right in his heart. And I mean, it's gonna go right in the baller room. I'm in, I'm in the ground blind because it's so thick. There's no big trees in there. Right. It's a doe to my right, and there's three does out there. He's pushing, and he's looking back in my direction, and he turns and walks the other way. I don't get to let that arrow go, and it breaks my heart. And I said, Well, maybe I will get another chance. And I didn't see him again until after, you know, until after the season, he come back in. Yeah, that song was smart. But that loop he was making, I had him patterned so good. I said, when he comes in, I'm going to be waiting. He was coming in between 4.30 and 5. He first showed his daylight pictures at, on October 18th. Mm -hmm. Every year at the same time for two straight years. And that was the key because he would come in and check those the night before, uh, one in the morning. And then that morning, he would come back and push those between 10.30 and 11 o'clock on the 18th. And then he again did it again. So this year, I was like, He's mine. I know when he's coming, right. and I and and I'm gonna get him. And then that day, I sit there, and all these other bucks, is, and they was just deer running everywhere. And I knew right then something wrong. That hurt me because you know that guy. You know I don't knock gun hunters, but he probably was just sitting there. I mean, I, I saw the picture. He's got on a pair of blue jeans and a hat, the old ragged thing, like he's smoking <laughs> cigarettes. I'm like, hell, he's probably sitting in a box blind when he didn't even give a shit. You know, <laughs> ain't putting no work in. But when you put your heart and your soul into a deer like that, yeah. that you beat and you get that close and you're ready to shoot, and I had him, and I had him dead right. right. And I still got that video on my Instagram, you, and I just need him to take a step. I leaned on trying to get that air in there, and I, and I just couldn't. He leaves, and I'm thinking, you know, did, did he pick me off? And that doe to my side, she was so close, she was kind of hitting the, hitting the brush and pushing my blind a little bit. So I walked down, and I looked back in the blind, and, and you couldn't see my camera. You couldn't see nothing. So I don't know what made him leave, mm. but, you know, the next day he came back through on camera, but I wasn't hunting. And then he came back through again the next day, and I wasn't hunting. But I didn't get to see him again until, you know, when I got back in there. But this year, yeah, he's done. But I get a buck on camera that's identical to his rack because Dabo's got split brows. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he blew up. And after this guy had him scored, he scored 159, and I think 159 and three eighths or something like that. Good grief. Yeah, and there's another buck in there. He's about two years old. His rack's shaped identical. Mm -hmm. And you could see where his brow is like it was going to split. And I said, that's his offspring. 
So I got to keep him around, and I've been putting out some salt, some uh, mental sites, and they're tearing it up, man. They're killing it. Brainland. So that's volume one of the best of. Like I said in the intro, it's not a countdown. It's not like a top ten or a top nine or whatever. These are just moments that I went and pulled out. And I encourage you to go back and listen to all those episodes. The links are going to be down in the uh, notes section of the podcast. I encourage you to go check out those episodes, the full versions of those episodes. Um, I'm going to do a volume two best of at some point, and we're going to get more in there. I mean, because there is a ton of meat left on the bone for to do best ofs, I should say. We had a great, great year. I, like I said, this was more than what I expected to be. People were so gracious with their time sitting down to talk to me. We didn't crush all of the goals that I had set for the podcast, but the beauty of it is we'll get to start start again, and uh, we'll try to crush them in 2020. Uh, so, but as of right now, only thing I can do is just say thank you to everyone that has supported the podcast that allowed us to get to episode 50. Thank everyone who has edited and written show notes for my podcast. I really appreciate y'all. Just thank you for, you know, your help and your time you know, the old, as the old cliche goes, you know, I can't do this by myself. Lord knows I damn tried, but I got smart real quick. And, you know, I know my strengths and know my weaknesses. So thank you to everyone, like I said, that's helped uh, with this podcast so far, uh, especially here in 2019. But it is enough rambling for me. A couple things, like I said, I'm just going to drop real quick. Per usual, bryantlandcountry.com. Make sure you check out the website. Has all the podcast on there. You can go on the website, listen to the podcast. You can check out the Bryantland videos, stuff that we've done uh, over the years. Uh, we got merch, of course, BryantlandCountry.com. Uh, merch, videos, podcasts, one-stop shopping for everything Bryantland. Merry Christmas, people. Enjoy your Christmas. Spend it with your loved ones. Spend it with your kids. Spend it with your family. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in South Carolina uh, with the kids and my mom. Take them to go see their grandmother, all that stuff, and then get back out here on the trail and get back to work uh, coming up at the end of the week and Christmas. Hopefully, I'll get a couple more deer hunts in. I'm still trying to knock down um, a buck. And then um, once deer season's over, we'll kind of see – where we go, I'll probably get in a couple of duck hunts, and um, they might be able to uh, chase some uh, hogs once deer season dies down and duck season dies down. But we'll see. For now, enjoy Christmas. Merry Christmas. I hope, as uh, my father used to say, I hope Santa Claus bought you everything that you wanted and everything that you were looking for. Thank you all again. I really appreciate it. And come back next week for another episode of the Bryantland Country Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Bryantland Country Podcast, hosted by AB3. Please leave us a positive review and five-star rating on iTunes. Be sure to check out our podcast section on our website, bryantlandcountry.com, for previous podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Official Bryantland and Twitter at 3 Bryantland. This has been an AB3 Media Production. Join us next time for another edition of the Bryant Land Country Podcast.